Chapter 27 Seven and Nine Years Among the Comanches and Apaches An Autobiography by Edwin Eastman This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. THE ESCAPE Turning in the direction of the mountain, we put our horses into a hard run, and in a few moments were tearing our way through the mesquite bushes that fringed its base. The undergrowth became denser as we advanced, and it was found advisable to abandon the ponies and forge ahead on foot. The safety of our party depended in a great measure on the celerity of our movements. Hastily dismounting and tying the cattle to some sturdy sage bushes, we continued our ascent, and it was not many minutes before we had reached a portion of the mountain that shelved out over the ravine, thus forming an admirable position for the signal operations. My companion briefly explained the method of smoke signals, which were made by gathering a quantity of very dry underbrush for the fire, and green twigs, boughs of pine, balsam, and hemlock being placed upon the blazing wood, covers the flame and throws off a dense smoke that may be seen at great distances. After ascertaining his views, and receiving my instructions, I plunged into the wood and busied myself collecting materials for our telegraph operations. It was not long before we had a sufficient quantity of material gathered, and placing the dry wood in such a manner that it might be easily ignited, my companion produced his tinder apparatus, and was soon at work drilling the block of hard wood and frantically endeavoring to coax a spark that might set the pile in a blaze. As few, if any, of my readers understand the method by which Indians light their fires, I will hastily describe it. The Indian is unfamiliar with the use of matches. Even the more primitive flint and steel is a sealed book to him. Hence, he resorts to a very simple, but laborious contrivance. Each Indian supplies himself with two dried stalks of the Mexican soap plant, about three-fourths of an inch in diameter. One is made flat on one side. Near the edge of the flat surface, a small indentation is made to receive the point of the other stick, and a groove cut from this down the side. The other stick is made with a rounded end, and placed upright upon the first, placing the stick with a flat surface between the feet. The point of the other is placed in the hole made to receive it, and turning it between the palms with a backward and forward motion, and pressing the point forcibly into the lower stick, a fine powder is made, which runs through the groove and falls on the ground. By constant and rapid motion the wood begins to smoke, and at length the fine particles take fire. The spark is soon nursed into a flame, and the brushwood ignited. 
In this manner our fire was lighted, and heaping up the pine and hemlock boughs, the surrounding atmosphere was one dense cloud of smoke. Stealing to the very edge of the cliff, I peered over and anxiously scanned the plain below. I could see Stone Hawan's band fighting desperately with their foes, who, by their superior numbers, were overpowering the Comanches. Immediately behind the belt of timber, and to the left of the contending factions, was the party comprising the band under the leadership of Hiso de Cha. They were moving cautiously around the timber, and had not as yet observed the signal. Once more the signal was worked, this time sending up a denser cloud than before. It was observed by the ambushed party. They drew rein, and after a hasty consultation, turned and retraced their steps. The movement was not executed any too soon as the main party were retreating before the successful assault of the enemy, and endeavoring to gain the friendly cover of the wood. Hisso de Cha pressed rapidly forward, and emerging on the plain, swooped down upon the flank of the victorious Arapahoes. This sudden movement entirely changed the aspect of affairs. The Arapahoes fell back precipitately in the direction of the ravine, hoping by the means to gain shelter, and if the worst came to the worst, disband and scatter over the mountain. It was a thrilling scene, and I almost wished I was one among them. Our mission was accomplished and my companion intimated that we should descend the mountain and join the war party. As we descended, the Comanche preceded me, pushing his way through the bushes with a rapidity only acquired by long practice. Suddenly, the thought flashed across my mind that now, if ever, was my golden opportunity. What would there be to prevent my braining the Indian in his tracks and then escape? It was a savage and brutal alternative to be sure, but it was my only chance, and I might wait years in vain before another opportunity would present itself. As I resolved this scheme in my mind, my hand went instinctively to my belt and grasped the tomahawk. I trembled with excitement, and as if to keep pace with my thoughts, my steps quickened, and a few strides brought me close upon my victim. My quick and labored breathing must have attracted his attention, as suddenly wheeling, he confronted me, and evidently read the murderous intention in my eye. He sprang lightly to one side, and unsheathing his knife, stood as if expecting an attack. Simultaneously with this action, I drew my tomahawk and rushed upon him, aiming a blow at his head. He adroitly parried with his arm, but in doing so received a severe wound in the shoulder. Darting at me, 
he clutched my arm, and twining his limbs about my person, made a desperate endeavor to bring me to the ground. The tomahawk was of no use now. I allowed it to fall from my grasp, and with the disengaged hand clutched my knife. My antagonist's superior strength began to tell. I felt powerless, and his eyes gleamed with fiendish triumph. He raised the shining blade, preparatory to sheathing it in my body, when I suddenly felt the ground giving way beneath my feet, and in less time than it takes to relate it, we were rolling over a precipice with a sheer fall of about ten feet. The savage clung to me with a death-like grip, and encircling my neck with his arm, grasped my throat with his teeth. Those were fearful moments. I struggled to disengage my hand from his vice-like grip. The blood gurgled from my mouth, my tongue protruded, and I was gasping for breath in the last throes of strangulation, when we came to the ground with a terrific shock. The savage gave one yell that curdled my blood, and instantly relaxed his hold, falling limp and lifeless by my side. I was not many minutes in disengaging myself from my antagonist, and in doing so, I was made aware of the cause of the sudden turn of events that had saved me from a horrible death. It would appear that during the struggle and fall, the hand that grasped my knife was encircled around the body of my foe, and when we struck the ground, my body being uppermost, the knife had been driven to the hilt into his back by the force of the concussion. Everything now depended on the celerity of my movements. The remainder of the party would no doubt wonder at our long absence and dispatch runners to seek the missing signal makers. It would require but a glance at the prostrate form of their comrade to enable them to realize the true state of affairs and to make instant preparations to follow overtake the fugitive, and met out to him the reward of his perfidy. Hastily possessing myself of what few arms I needed, and taking the bag of parched corn that was suspended from the girdle of the fallen savage, I made my way to where the ponies were cached, and springing on my animal, urged him forward at the top of his speed leading the Indian's pony by the lariat attached to his bridle. My plan was to strike out over the prairie in a southerly direction, and by traveling without cessation, endeavor to put a wide gap between pursuer and pursued, and thus be unable to reach in safety some of the Mexican frontier towns. I was certain that this plan was feasible, from the conversation I had heard from time to time among the warriors of our band. Indeed, it was proposed by Hiso Ducha 
to raid on some one of the Pueblas, if they were unsuccessful in their attack on the Arapahoes, as by this means they would avoid the ignominy of returning to the lodges of their people without being able to display the fruits of a successful foray, such as scalps, horses, captives, etc. By riding my pony until he dropped from exhaustion and then availing myself of the fresh lead horse, I could travel an immense distance without drawing rein. It was growing dark when I started, and I had not traveled far before the night closed in, and I had to trust to the instinct of my horse to carry me safely over the prairie. My course was shaped by a certain star that would keep me on the right trail if I held it steadily in view. About midnight, I halted at a small stream to water the horses, and hastily prepare for myself a small portion of the parched corn, which was done by mixing a handful in a gourd filled with water. This corn is invaluable to those who wish to traverse long distances without being hampered with unnecessary luggage. With a sack or gourd of this article, containing about an half bushel, one can travel fifteen or twenty days without other sustenance. On we sped, the animals straining every muscle and nerve, their flanks heaving and flecked with foam. No sound broke upon the stillness of the night, save the rapid hoof-strokes of the mustangs, and occasionally the yelp of a coyote that was startled in his midnight prowlings by our sudden and rapid advance. Directly in my course loomed up a huge mound, and further on the dark forms of a range of low hills were outlined upon the horizon. I concluded to push on and gain their shelter. Once within their protecting shadow, I could pursue my course more leisurely and without the fear of immediate detection. My grand anxiety was to hide or blind the trail and by this means baffle the sleuth hounds, who were by this time in full pursuit. I had not proceeded far when the pony came to a sudden halt, which almost unseated me. I tried to urge him forward by word and action, but it was of no avail. He refused to move and stood trembling like an aspen. Leaning forward and peering over his neck, I discovered to my dismay a wide chasm which fully explained why the Mustang had refused to be urged forward. The banks on either side were quite level, and no indentations or ruggedness marked the line of separation. One could ride up to its very brink without being aware of a break in the prairie level. I had thus come upon one of those barrancas, the result of volcanic action that are so frequently met within this country. There was no alternative but to ride along its edge until I came to a point where its sides were depressed to the level of the plain. This, of course, involved a long detour and a consequent loss of valuable time. 
My only consolation was in the reflection that my enemies, in following the trail, would be compelled to resort to the same tactics. I had journeyed down its banks about three miles before I found an opportunity to cross. As I reached the opposite side, I turned and looked back. Away to my right, and in the direction from whence I came, I discerned a number of dark specks on the horizon, which filled me with the direst apprehensions. These dark objects were, doubtless, the forms of my pursuers, who had, it would seem, traveled with a celerity almost equaling my own. The chase now assumed a desperate aspect. Before me lay life, hope, and freedom. Behind was a nemesis that represented captivity, torture, and death. I plied the whip vigorously to the flank of my jaded steed, in the frantic endeavor to reach the cover of the mountain. I had not proceeded far on my course when my pony showed unmistakable signs of giving out. Indeed, I had not made more than a mile on my course when the animal stopped abruptly. I could feel him tremble under my weight, and dropping on his knees, I had scarcely time to leap to the ground before he fell, and drawing a deep sigh, he turned on his side and died being absolutely ridden to death. I had no time to waste in mourning the brave little animal that had carried me thus far so faithfully. My robe was quickly transferred to the other horse, and the flight resumed. Reaching the base of the hills, I was so fortunate as to find water, and throwing myself at the foot of a tall cottonwood, with the lariat of the mustang attached to my wrist, I determined to snatch an hour's rest, of which both my mustang and myself were very much in need, after our long and arduous ride. I was awakened by a violent pulling at my wrist, caused by the horse, and trying to reach fresh grass. In a few moments I was up, mounted, and away once more in the direction of the Mexican towns. Towards evening, I came to a river of some magnitude. It was now the dry season, and the stream was only a rivulet compared to what I judged it must be when swollen by the rains and melting snows from adjacent mountains. I had, during the latter part of my journey, been casting about in my mind a series of plans which would enable me to blind my trail, when lo! Here was an opportunity that surpassed my most sanguine expectations. To urge my horse into the stream was the work of a moment, and then, turning his head with the current, I continued the journey. At times, the water would brush the animal's flanks. Again, it would suddenly shallow and scarcely cover his fetlocks. Occasionally, I would strike a deep hole, and be obliged to swim the animal some rods before reaching terra firma. These irregularities in the riverbed 
were due to its quicksand formation, which was constantly shifting, shallowing here, deepening there, and it would have been sure destruction to horse and rider if we stopped for a moment in our tracks. After journeying in this manner for about a mile, I entered a cannon, whose walls ascended to a height of thousands of feet, perpendicularly. On emerging from this gloomy pass, a sight met my gaze that made me shout for joy. Gaining the bank of the stream, I saw extended before me waving fields of grain, and in the background the modest spire of a little church, which was surmounted by a gilt cross that fairly scintillated under the rays of the noonday sun. I had arrived then, at last within the confines of civilization, and my career as a savage was about to be abruptly terminated. As I pushed forward along the road that skirted the grain fields, and the familiar sounds of former days fell upon my ears. The tinkle of the cowbells, the busy hum that filled the air like the whisper of early recollections, wafted down through the airy halls of time, made the scenes, trials and sufferings, appear but a horrid dream, and I seemed to be just waking to reality. A glance at my tattooed and painted form, however, soon brought me back to a realizing sense of my position, and set me to reflecting how I should explain my presence in this hostile guise to any chance inhabitant whom I might meet. After much cogitation on the subject, I concluded it would be best to ride boldly into the village, and seeking the alcade, explain my situation in as good Spanish as my limited knowledge of the tongue would permit. I had not gone far when I was encircled by a crowd of bewildered and frantic Mexicans who were shouting, Indios! Los Indios! at the top of their squeaky voices. While I made a running accompaniment to their remarks by holding up my hands, with a palm outstretched towards them and shouting in my turn, Amigo! Reaching the plaza, I dismounted, entered the cantina, and called for a basin of water. Stripping the plumage from my head and relieving my body of its meretricious adornment, I plunged into the bath prepared for me and came out an entirely different-looking individual. The news of my arrival had collected an eager and enthusiastic multitude who filled the patio. I said enthusiastic, but all due allowance must be made for the natural and inherited indolence of the Mexican. On emerging from the inn, I was greeted with several shouts, and fifty people were asking me questions in one breath, all bent on having them answered in less than no time. I finally succeeded in relating my history, adventures, and escape, and wound up with an appeal to their charity. Setting forth my utterly destitute condition in the most glowing terms my exasperable Spanish would permit. It was an animated scene. The men in the checkered serape or striped blankets, conical sombreros with broad brims, 
calzoneros of velveteen with rows of shiny buttons and a sash of gaudy color encircling their waists. The women were no less conspicuous, draped in the graceful sabazo, the short vagna, and the finely embroidered camisette. My appeal was not met with that spontaneous generosity that I could have wished. In fact, they contributed nothing, and as a last resort, I was compelled to offer my horse for sale, which venture was more successful, and I soon disposed of him at a very fair price. I was now enabled to buy the few articles of clothing that I was most in need of, and after lingering a few hours in the village, I concluded to push on toward Santa Fe, in the hope of falling in with some party of traders or miners, and then trust to the chapter of accidents for the rest. Fortune favored me in my designs, as I soon had an opportunity to join a party of Mexicans, who were en route for the capital of New Mexico, on trading schemes and tent. I accompanied them in the capacity of muleteer. Arriving in Santa Fe, I immediately repaired to the largest inn, being attracted thither by a number of uncouth characters in hunting shirts and slouch hats. I entered unobtrusively and took a quiet survey of the scene. The room was the cantina, and all were indulging in potations more or less deep of El Paso whiskey. The atmosphere was redolent of the fumes of tobacco, and commingled with the shouts and coarse language of the men was the shrill treble of the woman, who darted here and there through the throng like sunbeams. I was attracted by one rude specimen who seemed bent on getting up a fight. This great rough fellow, of six feet and over, called a trim little poblana to him, with Hey, yar, my little masacha, vamoose, and get me some of that other pass. Good now, and clar. Then, as the liquor was produced, he offered the waiter a quantity of money, which was unhesitatingly accepted, with a mucho bueno, senor. Hoorah for you! Come along! Let's liquor up all around and have a dance. You're the gal for my beaver, bully for old Missouri. Suddenly, a pistol was discharged in a remote corner of the room, and there was an instantaneous rush in that quarter, succeeded by loud cries, oaths, blows, shooting, din, and confusion. Sick and weary of such scenes, I left the cantina, and sallying forth into the plaza, wandered down the street, not knowing where to go or what was to become of me. I cared less. End of chapter 27